Today's podcast is all about orca whales. Why orcas? Well, first of all, this is our sea issue, and they live there. Secondly, orcas' lives and societal structures are highly gendered. They live in matriarchal societies, with female orcas responsible for passing on complex and highly differentiated food cultures. When we think about culture, we mostly think about humans. But culture has shaped orcas' evolution and the vulnerabilities that many orca populations are currently experiencing. These vulnerabilities often relate to orcas' food sources, which in many cases is salmon. And these food sources are in turn impacted by our own human food systems and choices. Through whales, we'll also think about gendered food insecurity, the value assigned to feminized labor, and hierarchies of living beings more broadly. To be honest, my three-year-old inner child is entirely delighted to be thinking about these topics through the lens of orcas. I spent about a decade obsessed with Free Willy, crying repeatedly at the opening scene when Willy is taken from his pot, and telling anyone who would listen that I wanted to become a marine biologist. Clearly, I have landed very far from that point. So today we're going to be speaking with someone who is far more of an expert than I am. Hi, Troy. It's Isabella calling. How are you? I'm good, Isabella. Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to connect again. How have you been doing? Uh, I've been doing well. I've been here at my research station collecting data over the summer. And uh, yeah, it's a nice, calm, beautiful, sunny day here waiting for whales. You're hearing the voice of Troy Bright, an orca expert who I quite literally stumbled across one summer day in 2018. On a family trip to Sointula, a remote point off the northern coast of Vancouver Island and what is the unceded territories of the Kwa-Wak-Waka. I was walking on a remote pebble beach called Beautiful Bay, which is famous for being a destination where orcas, northern resident orca whales to be specific, come to rub themselves on the stones for reasons that remain unknown. In the distance, I spotted a man standing next to a large tent with high-tech looking devices propped up amongst the driftwood around him. Of course, I had to ask who he was and what he was working on. My name is Troy Bright. Uh, I live on Malcolm Island, and I've been conducting a research project at Bear Point on Malcolm Island for the past uh, 27 years. Um, and Northern Resident Killerails is our main focus uh, for data collection here, but uh, we've also been collecting data on uh, all the cetaceans that we see here. And... Uh, yeah, I don't have a degree, but um, I'm pretty much self-taught, and I've gotten a lot of advice from people who do have a group of degrees um, in early years when I started. I ended up interviewing Troy for an article about orcas for a different publication a few years back, and I learned so much from his insights. For starters, three distinct types of orcas inhabit the waters around BC. Northern residents and southern residents who mainly feed on Chinook salmon, and Biggs orcas, also known as transient orcas, who hunt a variety of mammals, including seals. These three types of orcas do not interact or interbreed. Troy studies the northern residents, and he knows the whales so well that he can even recognize them by ear. Orcas live in pods, and as you might know, their social hierarchies are complex and highly gendered. What I want to talk about with Troy now, a few years after our first conversation, is how, just like many of us learn to cook from our moms and our grandmothers, 
Orca's food habits are also passed down through generations. Well, the northern resident uh, community of killer whales, um, they're fishing, um, particularly salmon eaters, and their primary prey really is Chinook salmon. That's what they're really after. They live in matrilineal groups. So um, for most of the groups, there's an oldest, the oldest female um, is the leader of the group. There's a few groups that don't have a matriarch because uh, they died or they're orphans and they, they kind of stick together. But for the most part, most of the groups that we see in Northern Residence, they're known as matrilines and they have uh, matriarchs. It's a matriarchal society. The matriarchs play a very important role in the family group, leading the group, of course, because of their um, the wisdom and knowledge that they have of places to find fish, places to find other whales uh, in the Northern Resident community. And uh, killer whales, they go into menopause, uh, female killer whales. That's very similar to, to humans in the sense that grandmothers have all this time to share with their family, to, to lead the family, to, to uh, pass on knowledge to their family for, for future generations. Female orcas are the ones who teach younger orcas how to eat. Animals often pass on knowledge through imitation, but orcas actually use teaching, aka altering their own behavior to encourage a behavior in their offspring and language to impart wisdom. I asked Troy specifically how the matriarchs of the pod are involved in passing on dietary habits. This is one of the most important roles that a matriarch will play is the knowledge about where to get food, when to go to certain places and be there to intercept salmon. Calves, they follow their mothers very closely, of course. They're, they're right beside them pretty much all the time. They're learning their vocals, so they're learning their individual dialects that these matrilines have. The calves will be learning those from their mother and also from family group as they move along from place to place and the activities they're doing. Fishing um, for salmon or finding salmon for the group is another important role for matriarchs. And another thing that they do, orcas, uh, these resident orcas, is they share their food amongst their family group. So this would be another learned behavior by the calves that, you know, this, this is what we do. We, we share the food that we catch. And I'm wondering what you think about the idea that these diets could constitute a type of food culture in the sense that they're socially learned and they're, they're socially passed on. And I think we tend to think of mostly humans as having culture. We don't think about the non-human world so much. But what I find right. really interesting, I guess, about orcas and their food culture is that, of course, when, say, they're, they're taught by their pods and by their mothers to eat salmon, they will continue to eat salmon for the rest of their lives. But, of course, they won't deviate even when that supply is dwindling. We certainly do show what we we term to be culture in their food selection. They're relatively picky eaters in a sense. I mean, they have been known to eat other fish, lingcod, halibut have been found in some bellies of some of the rare whales that were found on shore. But for the most part, Chinook salmon is their primary prey. And that's what they're really looking for. I mean, they do eat other salmon species and chum salmon in the fall is high on the list as well. But Chinook salmon are found on the coast year-round in British Columbia. They, they have been on a decline for many, many years. And there's no doubt when there's some other salmon around, perhaps that whales are eating those salmon. But it really seems to be the case that these ancient rules hold strong for them, that Chinook salmon is the salmon of choice. So culture, definitely. Troy points out that Chinook is perhaps the most nutritious food orcas can get, it being a very fatty salmon, and is therefore preferable to eating other salmons, like pink. 
Meanwhile, Big Zorkas, another orca group in the region, have completely different food cultures. With Big Zorka and this uh, same sort of ancient rules that hold strong for them, we don't eat fish, we eat marine mammals. The same food divisions that Troy describes in British Columbia can be seen around the world. Orcas in Patagonia might eat sea lion pups, while in Norway, they're apparently crazy for herring. For some orcas, including in BC, their food cultures are currently threatened. The same way that our own food cultures can be threatened by gentrification, globalization, and other forces. Unsurprisingly, just like when it comes to our own problems, for orcas, us humans are also the source of the threat, both through our dietary habits and the ways that we've come to use the ocean. For millennia, salmon stocks have been managed sustainably by First Nations in British Columbia, for whom salmon plays an essential role in both nutrition and spirituality. But in the last half of the 19th century, under industrialization, driven by the settler colonial regime, salmon fishing became a key element in BC's economy, and since then, stocks have become increasingly degraded. In 2018, the province's Department of Fisheries forecasted that of the 91 different groupings of salmon in the province, only 28 were expected to be at or above the necessary amount for a healthy population moving forward. We are just tenacious consumers. We are, we are the, the, the most successful predator on this planet. And these Chinook salmon on the BC coast, which have been targeted by humans for, I don't know, I couldn't say how long, but you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, are definitely on a decline. There's really seems to be no question about this. And in particular, whales who you know, would say not doing so well would be the southern resident killer whales, which also rely on Chinook salmon, also is part of their culture to be a primary prey. In addition to overfishing, Chinook populations have been impacted by habitat degradation, fish farming, and the building of dams that sever salmon from their spawning grounds. Those whales down there must be really having some struggles finding these Chinook salmon with the pollution that we're putting into the oceans. Chemical pollution is a huge risk to orcas, who sit at the top of the oceanic food chain. Tons of the chemicals that we put in our oceans accumulate in the fish and other animals that orcas eat, eventually lodging themselves in orcas' blubber. When salmon are scarce, starving whales' metabolisms will start to eat into these blubber reserves, risking that these toxins flood into their bloodstreams. An influx of these toxins can lead to female orcas experiencing miscarriages late in pregnancy, which is devastating for a population that already has low birth rates. Boat traffic also has an impact on orcas' eating habits. Noise in the ocean created by vessels that humans are operating can make it harder for whales to communicate, where they've been known to call louder when there's lots of boat noise, and it can also make it harder for them to catch a fish. For instance, if there's a, if there's a whale that's got its eye on a salmon, it's echolocating, it, it, it finds it, it's got all the information it needs to catch it, and then a boat comes along, and interrupts that by the noise that it makes. Sometimes the whales will just abort that fish that it was pursuing and, you know, not have a meal. So are we having an impact on them? There's, there seems to be, I would say, no doubt that we've had an impact on them and their ability to find enough Chinook salmon. Troy and I talked about some of the ways that policy can protect British Columbia's orca populations. Regulating and reducing marine traffic is one way. Another option relates to the salmon run, and whether fishing, which is already quite tightly regulated, remains open at all. No one wants to hear it. Close it. For a couple of years, um, perhaps that may help. 
Most of us, if we've been lucky enough to interact with whales, would have done so through whale watching. In BC, there are strict regulations on how closely whale watching boats can approach whale pods, although these are not always adhered to in reality. Regardless, Troy believes that whale watching plays an important role in helping humans to feel connected to this non-human marine kin. In our interview a few years back, he told me that he first became enthralled by orcas on a ferry to Alert Bay, BC in 1997. For the article that came out of that interview, Another conservationist working with the provincial government's Department of Fisheries agreed, telling me that whale watching, in his opinion, helps people to take conservation more seriously. We'd love to hear what you think about this. Do zoos, aquariums, and more quote-unquote natural encounters with wildlife foster a culture of conservation? Personally, I think it's all about how these encounters are facilitated and with what degree of respect and reciprocity. When I consider this, I think about an anecdote from the book Bring Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who describes an experiment by one of her Indigenous graduate students, which found that a patch of sweetgrass, tended to by humans, flourished far more than a patch that was left to its own devices. As many other environmental thinkers have noted, humans are not separate from nature. Removing ourselves from the equation does not automatically return ecosystems to a more balanced state. That said, there's no doubt that our overfishing and boat traffic are having a real and existential impact on one of our ocean's apex predators in a way that works through the gender dimensions of their food culture, which have developed over millennia to become specific to place. A central tenet of the politics we subscribe to at FFJ are the linkages between animal liberation and feminist liberation and the interconnection between all living beings. I find it striking, for example, that the food insecurity being experienced by BC's resident orcas due to climate change and overfishing has a Terranian parallel with rising food insecurity for humans in the region, which is coming as a result of compounding costs of living pressures and the impacts of climate change and natural disasters on agriculture. Just like orca matriarchs, it is often women who feel the squeeze the tightest, whose mental maneuvering at the grocery store and food bank has to find a way to make it all work. In BC, research has shown that food insecurity has a greater impact on the dietary intake of women than it does for men. And due to the undervaluing of feminized labor and continuing persistence of wage gaps, single women are particularly vulnerable to experiencing food insecurity. In that study, 21% of male lone parent households reported being food insecure, but 38% of female lone parent households reported the same. The same study also showed that food insecurity is most common among households where respondents identify as Indigenous, Arab or West Asian, or Black. Just like matriarch orcas, women, particularly racialized women, may find themselves struggling to pass on the food knowledge and practices that sustain their communities. There are also links between human and non-human when it comes to the gendered impacts of hunger and malnutrition. We know that hunger and malnutrition can have particular impacts on women's bodies, and we've seen that it also does with female orcas, for example, with their increased propensity to experience miscarriages during periods of salmon scarcity. The same food insecurity report from the government of British Columbia, 
which is from 2021, says that the heightened rates of food insecurity among Indigenous and racialized groups are related to structural factors such as racist and colonial policies, practices, and norms that restrict access to opportunity and upward mobility for racialized people. It also says that addressing food insecurity requires attention to the structural drivers or the causes of the causes that drive health and its determinants. When it comes to orcas that share our region, what are the causes of the causes? Is it our taste for Chinook or wakeboarding? Or is it fundamentally the way that we value the lives and ecosystems of beings in the sea and what value we assign ourselves in relation to them? Other scholars and writers have noted how speciest and ableist hierarchies have historically sought to subjugate non-human animals, people with disabilities, people of color, and women based on interlinked criteria of whose humanity counts. For more on this, there's a great essay in Luke's magazine by Astra and Sonora Taylor called Our Animals Ourselves. And we can see this in the ways that inequality is architected on land and at sea. A historical example that speaks to this is how Indigenous female labor became essential to BC's once booming salmon canning industry. European salmon canners turned to First Nations to fill what they saw as a shortage of European labor. Indigenous women quickly comprised a significant share of workers at BC's canneries, staffing nearly a third themselves alone. But along the lines of the hierarchy of humanity described by Astra and Sonora Taylor in the Our Animals Ourselves piece that I referenced earlier, First Nations laborers at the canneries were paid less than Europeans, and First Nations women and children were paid the lowest wages of all. Their wages were so low, in fact, they were far below the cost of their actual labor, which allowed canneries to profit greatly. The work for these women was long and hard, but the canneries also became hubs for joy and communion. Couples met at the canneries, babies were born, canning lines were opportunities to bond and catch up. And in this way, resistance existed side by side with the exploitation of Indigenous women's laboring bodies and Orca Whale's key food source. What opportunities do we have for seeking joy and building resistance, which include the non-human world that is so essential for the functioning of our own? What agency do non-human animals have? Whales obviously have more limited physical and political recourse than we do in the face of oppression. But in the last three years, a pod of orcas in Gibraltar has begun ramming into ships, sinking three and damaging dozens. Experts have not discounted the fact that these actions could be taken out of a desire for destruction or an experience of anger. Perhaps we should think more about the ways to work, if not together, but for one another. There is, obviously and like always, so much more we could dig into here. But for now, I'll just say that it's a good reminder that our collective well-being, as humans and non-humans alike, will forever be intertwined. And I'm grateful for passing Choi that summer day on the beach and being able to dive into the world of orcas this deeply. Thank you again for your time. And I mean, your work is extremely important. Is there anything that can be done to support your research efforts or to amplify or engage with the work that you're doing? My Facebook page that's called Bearpoint Research, and there is a lot of information there about whales, about what's happening now, um, 
that would be a place to, to want to go and, and check that out. And if they feel like supporting me in some way, they could reach me there. Thank you so much. Okay, have a great day. Bye-bye. This has been a Feminist Food Story by me, Isabella, an editor of Feminist Food Journal, as part of our C issue. To read the rest of the incredible stories we featured in this issue, visit our website at www.feministfoodjournal.com.